Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, you're listening to Talking France. On this podcast, we will bring you up to date with all the big news and changes in France that you should know about, all in roughly 30 minutes. On this week's episode, we will look at the latest skirmishes in the battle between the French government and unions over pension reform. The protests appear to be growing in strength and more strikes are planned in February. It's no doubt a crucial moment in Emmanuel Macron's presidency. But will he prevail? In a very different subject this week, we'll examine whether the French really are rude and abrupt and hear about one of France's biggest and arguably best theme parks that not many outside of the country have heard of. We'll find out how long foreigners have to work in France to qualify for a French pension and look at where this reputation of the French being sexy comes from and more importantly, is there any truth in it? I'm your host, Ben McPartland. I'll be joined as ever by the dynamic team at the local France, editor Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield and politics expert John Litchfield. Now, before we get all serious with an update on the strikes this week, the French actress Eva Green has been in the spotlight for perhaps the wrong reasons. Jen, who is she and why is she in the news? So Eva Green is probably best known for playing a Bond girl in Casino Royale, and she's currently embroiled in a court battle in the UK, and as part of that, some of her pretty rude WhatsApp messages went public. So in some of her messages, Green called the film's director weak and stupid. She accused him of making a, quote, cheap, B-shitty movie, unquote, and referred to the crew as peasants. But the reason that we're talking about this is how Eva explained herself. She said that the comments were just her Frenchness coming out. And these comments have made quite a splash because of the well-established trope that French people are rude. Okay, before we get onto this well-established trope, what's the reaction been in France? I imagine they haven't really been too impressed by what Eva had to say. Well, yeah, to be fair, French people have been taking to social media to criticize Evergreen for having blamed her rudeness just on being French. One French person on social media called it, quote, the worst excuse in the world. And another tweeted, I am French and do not insult anyone publicly. This is down to respect and education. Okay, I'm going to stick my neck on the line here. I might upset a few people, but I don't think the French are rude. I'm going to say it. I've been here long enough. However, I do think that they can easily come across as rude, perhaps to foreigners who maybe haven't been in the country that long or maybe don't understand the quite intricacies of the French themselves, Jen. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned that, Ben, because in 2015, France itself actually launched a campaign to attract more tourists. And one of the major tenants was to encourage business owners and those in service industries to be nicer to tourists. So this stereotype exists both within France and outside of the country. Basically, the plan included asking waiters to be less grumpy, but it also had some official guidance like telling border guards to greet tourists and welcome them to France. But I agree with you. I think that it can be a bit of an unfair cliche. Most of the time when people complain about the French being rude, they're really complaining about Parisians. And the French capital city is like most capitals around the world. People tend to be more stressed and probably less concerned with making visitors feel welcome. And then there's also the common scenario of getting a cold shoulder or off-putting response from someone if you forget to say bonjour. I've run into the situation several times when I've started ordering something at a shop and the store owner stops me mid-order and says, ah, bonjour. (laughs) And then I remember that that's probably how I should have started the conversation to begin with. Actually, I have a funny story about this 
because one time my friend went to a party with French people and she came in and said hello to the people in the room and then just proceeded to have a nice time at the party. And then later on in the night, she goes to smoke a cigarette by the window and she runs into some guys that she hadn't seen when she initially walked into the party. They start chatting and over the course of the conversation, she mentions being American. And then one guy laughs and says, oh, so you're not rude, you're just American. And my friend was like, what? And they said, we just thought you were rude for not saying bonjour, but now we understand. And then he goes over to tell all of his other friends that she's just American and not rude. So it's a little Mm. bit in the eye of the beholder, I think. I think we all agree that bonjour ranks as the number one most important French word. Would you agree, Emma? Oh, yes, absolutely. You start everything with a bonjour. And like in a a normal day, you can easily have like 20 or 30 bonjours. Like even if you go for a swim, for example, you'll say bonjour when you pay. You'll say bonjour when you go into the cloakroom to get your stuff. You'll say bonjour to the lifeguard as you swim past. I don't know, maybe even if you drown, you have to say bonjour before they'll agree to start rescuing you. But you're not allowed to say it twice, are you? There's a little subtle difference. There's re bonjour for the second time. Or even just re. They just say re when they see you. Re bonjour, yeah. yeah. Hello again. Yeah, excusez-moi doesn't really cut it if you go into a shop you have to say bonjour. I think I've only had one experience of a grumpy waiter in France in like 12 years. When he came outside, it was in winter, I was going to order a hot chocolate and he came out and went, I'm cold, will you hurry up and order? I was like, what? (laughs) So I ordered 17 hot chocolates and did a run. No, I didn't. I was just like, but that was the one moment in 17 years. Are there any good tips for getting good service here in France to avoid this feeling of, you know, the person being rude? Well, honestly, I think pleasantries go a long way. So just make a habit of saying hello and goodbye. And that's also worth mentioning, you know, it's considered rude not to say goodbye to everyone. And the French even have an expression for this. It's called filet à l'anglaise. That means to make an English exit or to not say goodbye to everyone when you leave. Good advice. Finally, Emma, if you're meeting anyone in bureaucracy in France, it's best to make them feel very, very important, no? Yeah, I find, I mean, when you're doing like admin tasks as a foreigner, quite often you are awkward in the system, basically, you're, you're not standard. So quite often you are asking the, the fonctionnaire to kind of do something a bit extra. So I find it's very helpful to kind of go in and just say, basically, hello, I'm very sorry, I'm a foreigner. I've probably also, I'm a moron who's filled out this form correctly. Please, will you help me? And that, I find you'll get much a better response that way. I do come across people who'll sort of complain about fonctionnaires, but then it'll turn out they've kind of gone into the office and like thrown this down and gone, this is ridiculous, this isn't working, blah, blah, blah. And then they get bad service. But I don't know, just be be polite, I think. What's I'm a moron in French? (laughs) Je suis suis un idiot. Débile, je suis trop débile. Good advice, guys. And just say bonjour, as we've said. Now, moving on to the big subject in France. It's been the big subject in France for a few weeks now. It will be over the coming weeks and months. Emma, of course, we're talking about pension reform and strikes. Bring us up to date on what's been happening this week. So Tuesday, we saw the second day of mass strikes and demos. And overall, we kind of saw two things. We saw fewer people actually on strike. So there was less disruption on services like trains, schools, public transport, although it was still fairly significant. But we saw an increase in the number of people taken to the streets. There were demos and marches in towns and cities around France, and overall about 1.27 million people turned out, according to the Interior Ministry estimates. Although, if you listen to the unions, they'll have you believe it was a lot more. But both sides agreed that that's more than last time, and that feels like a win for the unions, because normally, like, protest numbers go down over time. They obviously feel pretty confident about it, because on the evening of this strike, the unions announced two more dates. So we've got Tuesday, February 7th, and Saturday, February 11th, and that's going to be, again, mass strikes, a lot of disruption and demos across the country. Yeah, like you say, the numbers 
does vary wildly between what the unions estimate and what the police estimate. However, there, there is the kind of belief that there was definitely more people on the streets this week right across France, not just in Paris where the main demo took place. Jen, you were at that demo. What was the mood there? Well, I would say that the mood was generally quite excited in Place d'Italie. There was always some sort of singing or chanting going on. And honestly, it was really packed. People were still leaving the square at 5 p.m., which is three hours after the procession was set to head off. And I also got to speak with an interesting range of protesters this time, too. One woman I spoke to, Osasui Made, is a femme de ménage, or a cleaner or maid in English. And she told me that she was protesting because as someone who has a very physically demanding job, she could not imagine having to continue working till 64. And she said that she did not think that this reform really took into consideration the differences of people's type of work. And then I also spoke to a couple, Paul and Isabel, who are both 56 years old. Isabel works in scientific research in the private sector, and her husband, Paul, is a civil servant in the public sector. And they said that in their circles, pretty much everyone is against the reform, or at least everyone who is at their dinner table on Sunday, but she wasn't sure if her friends are representative of the rest of France. Honestly, it was interesting to speak with Paul and Isabel because they don't really fit the image of the typical protester. First of all, they did not attend the first protest. And then second, they were more or less willing to admit that the pension system needed some changes. But according to Isabel, the main issue was that this reform would end up hurting the same people in hard jobs. And she said that there must be some other way to finance the pension system. But ultimately, she and Paul both said that they don't think there will be any ideal situation or solution to this because at the end of the day someone will still end up being unhappy. And this is a good time to bring in our politics expert John Litchfield who joins us on the line. I asked John whether either side were winning this battle. I think in in many ways it's going more or less um, according to the way one would have expected. I think the government had hoped that by now the numbers on the streets would have maybe melted a little bit. That's what's happened in recent years with big protests of this kind that the second day of action has been less effective than the first. Yesterday, they more or less matched the numbers across the country, even maybe slightly exceeded them, 1.27 million compared to 1.1 million. But then the strikes were less effective. You know, railways, the metro, power stations, schools, government offices were all disrupted, but working more than they were on the first day of action on the 9th. So in a way, that's a score draw. I think the problem for the unions is that they're now potentially going to be divided. There there is a sort of strong push within the more radical unions, the CGT Federation, to have um, open-ended strikes, which would potentially be far, far more devastating, obviously, than these one-off strikes and, and marches. But the the more moderate unions fear, no, we're winning, that would be disastrous. It would bring public opinion against us, especially with the school holidays coming up, if you're going to have people queuing at petrol stations, not able to get on trains. Just keep your nerve, we're winning. And I think that's that tactical or strategic battle in the unions is going to going to be interesting in in the next week or so as to which way that goes. The government, I think, is seems to be at least the people who run the government, not necessarily its troops in parliament, who seem to be getting cold feet. Some of them seem determined to push ahead. There will be concessions on some things like long careers of people who start in their teens or more likely uh, women who who interrupt their careers to have families will be given more concessions to try and soften reform. But the basic headline proposal of uh, working to 64 by the age of 2030, I think Macron is painted into a corner on that. I mean, if he gives gives way on that, then basically he can give up, domestically speaking, on the rest of his uh, four-year term and uh, five-year term. And there are four years of that and more still to go. So we're in for a big, big battle yet, Ben. You know, 
um, my belief all along is that in the end, Macron is so determined that it will go through Parliament by hook or by crook. Whether he gets the votes or not, he'll push it through by constitutional decree, means if necessary. Therefore, we're going to see far more disruption in the country in the next two or three weeks, one way or another, than we've seen so far. John, just on disruption, we noticed yesterday the number of strikers had gone down, that the kind of disruption that we've seen during previous attempts to reform the pension system hasn't taken place. And yet the numbers on the streets are going up. Can the unions win this just by sheer turnout for protests rather than bringing the country to a halt? Or do you think they really need to kind of up the level of disruption in order to win this battle? It's, it's a very interesting question, that, which is, as I say, what the argument that's going on between the more radical and the more moderate unions is precisely that. And if you look back to the last time, there was a very, very successful street movement of this kind, leaving aside the Gilets Jaunes, who got some concessions, but that was a very different kind of movement. The last time there was a big trade union movement that really defeated the government was in 1995, more or less on pension reform, when Chirac and the then Prime Minister Alain Juppé gave way. And there were big numbers on the streets then, about the same as yesterday. But there was also open-ended strikes in the railways and uh, in other sensitive parts of the economy, Paris Metro and so on, which did threaten to bring the country to a halt. So there was much more of a kind of hands around the throat of the government and the country than just having people march every 10 days or so. And there are two more marches due next week, as you know. I think it's next Tuesday and next Saturday, big marches. So yes, it is impressive to see huge numbers like that turning out, not just in the big cities, but in medium-sized towns where where often those kind of protests go unnoticed. It certainly sends a, a warning to the government. It's certainly quite impressive. But I, I think in the end, the unions are going to have to play hardball because Macron is wanting to play hardball. If they play hardball, they might lose the battle, battle in public opinion or start to lose it, and in which case Macron wins. So it's a bit of a game of chess that's going on. But I think you're right to say that in the end, um, numbers on the streets cannot alone win this war. And moving on, each week on Talking France, we take a trip around the country to pick out a part of France that has been in the news. This week, we have picked Puy de Fou. Has anybody heard of Puy de Fou? Emma, you've heard of it and you're going to tell us why it's in the news. I am, yeah. So it's a theme park. It's in La Vendée, which is western France. Uh, and it's sort of halfway between Nantes and La Rochelle. It's a bit in the middle of nowhere. And it's a theme park that's entirely dedicated to French history. And it's really popular. It gets about two million visitors a year. And it's France's third most visited theme park after Disneyland Paris, obviously, and the Parc Astérix, dedicated to another French icon. And it's sort of a, an interactive history. There are like replicas of historic French towns and villages, there's a Roman amphitheatre, they put on events, people dress up and they kind of reenact bits of history, particularly battles showing heroic French people resisting invasion from Vikings, Romans all kind of invaders. It's fair to say that it's a patriotic representation of French history, and some people see it as little more sinister than that. And it's true that the park's founder, Philippe de Villiers, he was involved in some pretty right-wing politics, uh, and he was, in fact, a monarchist. Yes, amazingly, they do still exist in France. The park is now run by his son, Nicolas, and the reason that it's in the news at the moment is that the park has produced its first feature film. It's called Vaincre ou Mourir, Victory or Death. It's out in cinemas now, and it's a historical drama that uses the park as the, the sets. And it tells the story of La Guerre de Vendée, the Vendée War, which was against the French Revolution, and it happened in the 1790s. Or maybe I should say it 
purports to tell the history because actual historians have been pretty unkind about its historical accuracy and also its kind of attempt to present the film as a documentary rather than the drama it really is. Some people have gone even further and denounced it as reactionary propaganda. The left-wing newspaper Liberation ran a front page calling it Puy du Feubre, which is a pun on the name of the park and it basically means like the, the cunning park or the sinister park. Ah, OK, hold on. The folk in the Vendée fought a war against the French Revolution. <laughs> They did, Just yes. tell us more about that. Um, yeah, I mean, they call it a war, but it's really a sort of series of rebellions against the French Revolution that ran between 1793 and 1796. Basically, the people of the Vendée, they didn't want the revolution. They wanted to restore the monarchy and go back to a pre-revolutionary way of doing things. It wasn't the only place to have this type of uprising. The revolution was less popular than you might think. But the Vendéans were unusually successful. And although their rebellion was eventually defeated, there was a really quite extraordinary level of brutality on both sides during this three-year conflict and around Around 200,000 people died. Emma, me and Jen know only too well you're probably the Vendée's number one fan. Just tell us two things we don't know about it. Uh, I am a huge fan of La Vendée, yes, it's my favourite holiday destination. One thing you might not know about it is, I think perhaps because of their war against the revolution, it has a reputation as quite a socially conservative and a strongly Catholic area. And the little symbol for the département, which you'll see on car registration places, is the Catholic Sacred Heart. But most French people would know it as a, a great holiday spot. It hosts 35 million overnight stays per year, and it's the French département with the second highest number of tourist beds. It's perhaps a bit under the radar for foreign tourists, but the French love it. And it also hosts France's most famous sailing race. It's called the Vendée Globe. It's a single-handed, non-stop, round-the-world yacht race, and it starts and finishes in Les Sables de Lonne, which is a town in La Vendée. The race has run since 1989, and if you walk along the sort of the esplanade, the seafront of the town, it has all these plaques embedded into it, showing the winning sailor each year and their times for each year's race. There you go, listeners. It's time to book tickets to the Vendée. Before we move on, I just have a request to all our listeners. If you like what you hear on Talking France, please take a minute to review us on the platform you listen to the podcast, whether Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps us grow our audience, which is basically what we need to do to be able to continue producing these episodes. Failing that, please just recommend us to a friend or family member or even on social media. Obviously, if you don't like what you hear, then please email us at news at the local.fr and tell us why. Thanks to all our listeners who are paying members of the local we wouldn't be able to do this without you on talking france we like to decode some of the stereotypes or cliches around french people we've already dealt with the idea that they are rude but is there any bigger cliche about french women and french men than the idea that they are well romantic world-class seducers sexy even emma do you want to start us off on this? Yeah, so last week we were talking about a more serious subject, which is France's problem with sexism, and obviously you can hear that on the last week's episode. But I think part of the reason that people outside of France are always shocked by the type of report that we did is the reputation that France has as this sort of home of romance, and the French themselves as particularly seductive, charming, sexy people. OK, now if we're going to pick out a few seductive, charming, sexy French men, I guess we're thinking Gérard Depardieu, Nicolas Sarkozy maybe... <laughs> Johnny Halliday, Napoleon even. If this is a myth, where does it come from? Well, it's a great question because when I was sort of researching this, I was just chatting to ordinary people about it, both Anglophones and French people. And basically almost everybody had a different theory. Some people said, oh, it came from romantic novels, the 19th century. Some people thought it was about the early decriminalisation of homosexuality during the French Revolution. A really wide range of theories. But 
when I found and talked to an actual expert, I was quite surprised by what I found out. I had a chat with Emile Chaval. He's a reader of history at Edinburgh University, and he's a specialist in European political and intellectual thought of the 20th century. And there were two things that he had to say that really stuck out for me. Firstly, that this image is much more recent than you might think. And although French fashion and French style has been famous for centuries, the image of the French themselves as particularly sexy isn't really cemented until the 20th century and kind of the second half of the 20th century at that. And the second thing is how much France itself has packaged and sold this image of a certain type of sexy Frenchness. It's sort of marketing agencies, as you would expect. But even governments from the the time of Charles de Gaulle onwards, which I think might be the first time anyone has ever used Charles de Gaulle and sexy Frenchman in the same sentence. But this is what Emile had to say. So traditionally, um, and I think certainly in the 20th century, uh, the dominant ideal of romance um, and style that has come out of France is one that involves particularly beautiful, well-cut clothes, um, elegant uh, interactions between people where they speak um, very sort of eloquently to each other, and one that, that seems to be free, uh, free relationships, free interactions. Um, and all of those stereotypes have come together to, to, to form this image of the French as, uh, as a particularly romantic people um, and France as, as the home of, home of love. And I think these stereotypes in many ways are, are wrong. France is a very conservative society. Gender roles are very, um, really quite strictly policed. And certainly the 20th century were more strictly policed than, than, for instance, other parts of Europe. France, of course, famously is, is a Catholic country and has been for, for centuries. And that, again, has imposed very strict roles on, on men and women and the way they can interact. But a combination of French cinema in the 20th century, um, of French music, of French prominent women in French intellectual life, like Simone de Beauvoir, all of these uh, different figures have, in a sense, they add up to create an idea of France as a place that's particularly open and free, especially in the domain of love and sex. Really interesting insights from Emile Chabal. Right, OK, look, if there's one thing we can agree on, it's that the French have the sexiest accent when they speak in English. Surely there's no argument there, Emma. Well, I'm sorry, I hate to burst your bubble, but there's actually nothing intrinsically sexy about the French accent when they speak oh, English. No. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was very sexy, but I'm still sorry. The local previously spoke to another academic called Dr Nigel Armstrong, and he's a specialist in French and sociolinguistics at the University of Leeds. And he basically said, it's not the sound of the accent, it's just the associations that it has for us. So because of this well-established trope of romantic, sexy French people, when we hear a French accent, our mind makes the association with romance, charm, um, elegance, and that's why we find the accent attractive. It's not actually the sound of the accent itself. Okay, and if there's one sound that we Anglophones pick out to kind of associate with French sexiness, it is ooh la la, is it not? But we kind of use this totally wrong, don't we? <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's completely different in France. First of all, you don't say ooh la la, it's oh, it's oh la la, oh la, la yeah. with the, the emphasis on the la. And it's nothing to do with sex. In French, it's an expression of surprise, really. It can be either good surprise or bad surprise. Maybe the closest equivalent in English might be something like OMG, but you hear it absolutely all the time in France. You might hear it in a bad way, like if you get to the prefecture and you see there's a queue stretching out the door, you oh la la. Or you might hear it in a more positive context, you know, if you're admiring your friend's new haircut or your friend's new engagement ring or whatever, you'll be like, oh la la, 
that's it, très joli. Yeah, OMG, I think, is maybe the, the closest English equivalent. But there's also, there's a sort of double plus version of it as well, which is, oh, la, 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 la. Always six las, and that's like extreme happiness, but usually extreme sadness. I hear it a lot during sports commentary. If it looks like somebody's going to score and then the striker misses an open goal, you often hear the commentators shouting, oh, la, 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 la. Yeah, it's a French sound that means a lot more than it than it comes across as. Jen, there's a couple more that we've picked out. You've picked out one that actually sounds German, doesn't it? Or looks German on paper. Yeah, it does. Uh, it's the sound, ah. <laughs> do that again, Jen, sorry. <laughs> it's the sound, ah. <laughs> okay. And uh, when I first heard it, I did not realise it was actually a word. I was just confused why people kept making this honking noise at the end of their sentences, because it is quite nasal sounding. Uh, but... Basically, un is the equivalent of the English a. So you would hear it at the end of a sentence. You might say, the traffic was really bad coming into work today, eh? In English. And then in French, you could say, la circulation était vraiment bouchée en venant du travail aujourd'hui, hein? Also, it's spelled H-E-I-N, which for whatever reason really surprised me, like you said, looks kind of German. Yeah, I first saw it written down and I honestly thought you were supposed to pronounce it Hein, but it's absolutely nothing like that. Definitely looks German. The sound that I've picked out, guys, it's one my father-in-law does a lot. It's just, like, explain that to readers. It literally is blowing a raspberry, isn't it? And I think it's just when they don't know something or often goes with a shrug if you ask them a question that they literally have no idea. They'll often shrug and just go, instead of saying, I've got no idea. Emma, you must have heard this. It's not just me, is it? Uh, yeah, yeah, although I kind of often hear it as more of a sort of sigh, more of a pfft. And I, uh, I did see a good explanation of how you make the pfft sound, which is you imagine you've got a ping pong ball in your mouth and you're trying to spit it out <laughs> to, uh, to create this noise. And like you say, it goes together very well with the, the classic Gallic shrug, if you don't know the exactly. answer to Exactly, it does. Language lesson of the week. If you don't know anything in France, just blow a raspberry and shrug your shoulders <laughs> and they'll get it. And moving on to our reader question this week. It's a simple one, but an important one that, Jen, you've spent a long time trying to get the answer to. How long do foreigners have to work in France to qualify for a French pension? Jen, over to you. So the answer to this question is surprisingly simple. You have to work just one quarter or one trimestre in France on a French contract. I spent several weeks trying to get the answer to this question. Plenty of sites online indicate minimums of 10 years or 15 years. But the quick answer is once you start working in France and on a French contract, then you start paying into France's pay-as-you-go retirement system. But, and this is a big but, how much you get actually depends on your contributions. So if you've only worked for two or three years in France, your French pension is going to be very small. So if you take me, for example, I've worked part-time for almost two years and then full-time for almost a year, although this past year hasn't even been added up yet. My French pension, if I were to stop work forever and retire at the eligible age, would be just four euros a month. We've got several informative articles on this subject on our website. If you also want to simulate or quickly see what your French pension would be as of now, you can go online to the French government website info-retraite.fr and you can uh, do your own little simulation to see what you would get for a French pension. Thanks, Jen. And as you say there, we have many informative articles on our website, thelocal.fr, covering all the subjects we've discussed today and in previous podcasts. And before we go, we like to bring you some life hacks for living in France. Jen, you're going to start us off this week. What's your tip? 
My tip is to download the app Too Good To Go. Basically, it helps prevent food waste, and it also helps you to get cheap groceries or leftovers at restaurants. I will say it's not available everywhere in France. When you download the app, you can basically put in your location and see whether it's available around you. It is available in Paris, though, and uh, I've started doing it recently, and my hack for the app specifically is that I think that it's best for boulangerie or bakeries, because if you go on a Saturday morning or um, a weekday evening, you might be able to get actually a pretty big bag full of croissants that are still good and it's very affordable so that that definitely helps you uh to keep your budget down as prices get higher interesting yeah i heard about a lot of french friends talking about that this week i'm going to check it out uh, i've got a couple of tips this week and if you follow the f advice of the first one you won't need to do the second one it is to stop at a stop sign in France. It sounds obvious, Emma, stop smirking at me. Uh, yeah, I do remember you coming into the office being very outraged when you got caught by this and saying, guys, did you know you have to stop at a stop sign? And we were like, well, yes, obviously, Ben, because that's what it says. And it even says it in English. Yeah, I made the mistake, illegal mistake, I should add, of glissing a stop is how they say it in French, is where you slide very slowly through a stop sign and there was three wagons of gendarmes waiting for me. There are strict rules in France for stopping at stop signs uh, and you're meant to stop there and mark the stop maybe two or three seconds before you carry on this uh, ended up with me losing four points on my license no one to blame apart from me of course but i did a course a two-day course to recuperate those points which if you're in a similar situation is worth doing they cost between 130 euros and 200 euros in france it's a two-day course it's quite heavy going you learn about the theory and why you should drive very carefully indeed emma over to you Okay, well, yeah, my tip is to visit the French tax office, not like for a fun day out, but if you have any kind of queries or problems about your tax system. The revelation of my life in France was that if you have a problem, instead of doing what you have to do in England, which is like try to ring up HMRC, you're on the phone for hours on hold and when you get through, the person seems to hate you. In France, you can just walk into your local tax office, you don't need any kind of appointment, and the people there are almost always incredibly friendly and helpful. So if you Google uh, Centre des Finances Publiques plus the name of your commune, that takes takes you to your local tax office. Do check their opening hours because a lot of them have slightly weird opening hours. But yeah, you can just walk in and say if you're not sure about what to fill in or if there's an issue where you think you're paying too much tax or whatever, you can just go ask. They'll sit you down, they'll go through your tax declaration with you. If you've made a mistake, they'll tell you. Other people have told me that, you know, they've even kind of flagged up other, you know, tax credits they could claim or whatever. So they're trying to help you save money. And it was a revelation to me. So visit your tax office if you need to. Great advice. The French people often do say to me that you know the one really well functioning part of their administration is the tax office thanks emma it, we're coming into tax season aren't we tax declaration season so yeah, it spring. might be worth finding out where your nearest tax office is right away and that brings us to the end of this week's episode thanks again to all our listeners for tuning in we'll be back with more news talking points and changes in france next week Hey, hey, it's Kip Bodner, CMO of HubSpot. Join me and my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, CMO over at Zapier, on Marketing Against a Grain. We're not the typical regurgitated Twitter threads. These are takes from us, marketing leaders about what we're doing and what we're learning from our peers and what's working in the market and how you can apply them to your business. Everything you need to grow a modern business and have a strategy that is fit for growth in today's changing economy. Listen to our podcast, Marketing Against the Grain, wherever you get your podcasts.